aid into Gaza and hostages out. I'm Elizabeth Vargas. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Tonight, no pause. Israel finally gains the upper hand. Why now does the United States want them to stop? Civilians should not suffer the consequences. Will President Biden ratchet up the pressure for a ceasefire? Billionaires escape. Jeff Bezos jets from blue Seattle to red Miami. He joins thousands of wealthy Americans escaping liberal cities. What happens to the rest of us normal folks left behind? Dead heat in Kentucky. A black Republican flipped the script on a popular Democratic governor. So now they play the race card. What's up, Kentucky? It's election time, and all skin folks ain't kin folks. Why Democrats never have to apologize for blatantly racist ads. And undue hardship. Ivanka Trump tries to get out of testifying because it's a school day. And now these children are being brought in away from their families for doing nothing wrong. Mocking working mothers across America is a bad look. It's 2 a.m. on the Gaza Strip, where Israeli troops appear now to have the tactical advantage and momentum. Momentum is as important in battle as it is in politics, and Israel told the United States today not to bother anymore with requests for pauses or ceasefires because they are not going to happen. Four weeks now into this war. With that, we welcome you to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, the leader of Hezbollah stayed in his bunker today to give his major speech, which interestingly enough, was more of a whimper than a bang. And it left the Palestinians and Hamas on their own. It exposed for the world to see the dirty little secret of the Middle East that nobody else, not Hezbollah and certainly not the Iranians, want to die for the Palestinians. So effectively, Hamas is on their own. We're going to come out to the maps now and show you once again how quickly the Israeli invasion of Gaza is working. The Israelis now fully have the tactical advantage. They've cut the Gaza Strip north to south. We told you very, very beginning of this war, that was what's going to happen. That prevents any supplies coming up north to Hamas. Uh, it also prevents Hamas from being able to move any of their fighters south. This is Hamas's stronghold here in Gaza City, and that's still their main area of defense. The Israelis now control the areas in the north, and then they have also obviously come in here um, from the west. Uh, we are told they are operating in this area as well with special forces, and they've moved some of their armor, you can see, up into this area, and then we also know here uh, into this area. Pretty stunning since October 7th. Obviously, the Israelis were caught off guard, but since then, in these four weeks, their ability to use combined arms, their air force, their intelligence gathering, their navy, and now their ground forces has been pretty extraordinary. And since the ground offensive has begun, for all the talk of urban warfare casualties, they've only lost 30 soldiers. That's pretty incredible in terms of what the Israelis have been able to accomplish. And now they have the tactical momentum, which makes the Israelis only more determined to keep going and ratchet up the pressure. Secretary Blinken was in Tel Aviv today, met with Benjamin Netanyahu, and as predicted, he raised the pressure on the Israelis for what even he couldn't exactly define, but he wanted 
some type of quote-unquote humanitarian pause. How to use any period of pause to maximize the flow of humanitarian assistance, how to connect a pause to the release of hostages, how to ensure that Hamas doesn't use these pauses or arrangements to its own advantage. The Israelis shut Blinken down. No pauses or ceasefires until they get their hostages back. And today we learned a little bit more about what the hostages are going through, or at least how depraved their captors are. And this is going to be hard. We want you to hear testimony from an Israeli first responder about what they saw and had to deal with and what Hamas had done on October 7th. The terrorists murdered the parents in a very gruesome way at home. They then took the baby and literally put him into the kitchen oven. It really defies the imagination, the human condition, to think about the depravity of putting a, a baby into an oven. Hamas burned babies alive, and now they have 240 men, women, and children as captive underground in Gaza. Specifically, we believe, and this is Israeli intelligence, that they are in the tunnels underground underneath Gaza in what they call the Gaza metro system. And so what you think about, this is Israeli video of one of the tunnels that they have captured. When we look at the large part of this map, the Gaza tunnel system, especially in Gaza City, extends all the way out to here. So it's both offensive for Hamas and defensive. So every time Israel blows up a tunnel, it risks killing the hostages. Of course, those hostages are held by Hamas fighters who we know what they are willing to do for two civilians. What's interesting is, is that for as brutally effective as the Hamas fighters were against unarmed civilians, against the actual Israeli army, they are crumbling. We just have some of the fighting now uh, for you. Uh, this is from uh, Hamas that they put out. And you can see them uh, firing off at the Israelis. What they never show you is what's actually happened, because we're understanding that their attacks on the Israelis uh, have been highly ineffective uh, on a large-scale basis in terms of what they've been able to blow up. We'll show you just a little bit more uh, of the fighting as well. This is some of the street-to-street fighting. We talked about this, about how difficult it's going to be for the Israelis uh, as they move farther into Gaza City, because you can just see how many different places there are for Hamas to be able to hang out and hide and ambush uh, the Israelis. Of course, the Israelis have been charged with a number of atrocities, uh, some of which uh, have been fully debunked. We want to show you some new video that's been unconfirmed, though, and I'll show you where it is. We'll start with the big map here. Uh, this is going to come from, we believe, somewhere here. So north of where the Israelis have cut off, they've told civilians to move south. And we know that Hamas has told civilians that they are not allowed to move south. Hamas wants the human shields. So they're talking about Al-Rashid Street. Al-Rashid Street, you have the beach right there. So this runs north and south along the beach. Uh, it's near where the tanks or armored vehicles from the Israelis uh, have been stationed. So it's just around where the Israelis have cut off uh, the area of Hamas's ability to move north and south. And this is what it is. This is unconfirmed video, but we have reason to believe that it is authentic. These are men, women, and children, clearly civilians, shot and killed along the street. Reportedly, they were shot and killed by Hamas as a message to other civilians that you have to stay. If these were people killed in an Israeli airstrike, you'd see big craters around here, and you'd also see a lot more damage to the bodies. That hasn't happened. It looks a lot more like 
wounds from sniper fire. With that, we want to bring in Glenn Ignazio, retired Air Force uh, Special Forces. Nice to see you in studio, my friend. Thank you um, very much. It feels as though Hamas is starting to get more desperate. Yes, it definitely does, because what they're doing is they're doing a lot of attacks out of the, the tunnels. They'll hit the Israelis and then they'll run back into the tunnels. So it's sort of a, a smash and then move back in for defensive postures. In addition to this, as you see what's been going on with these people that have been killed, this is what Hamas does. They've been doing this for a long time of using people as human shields. But at the same time, if they're not going to be stay, if they're not going to stay there, Hamas is going to hold them back. All right. You always have to be skeptical of public relations during war. There's the fog in war and then both sides have a story to tell. Um, what do you make now? of the Israelis' further intensification and feeling and in telegraphing that they think Hamas is quote-unquote crumbling? Well, when we look at what Hamas has done over the years, Hamas has never been a very well-trained force. I mean, the preparation for what they did in Israel must have taken years for them to do. So their ability to be able to conduct battle, any kind of battle that's very unified and cohesive against Israel is very, very weak by the best. So as Israel closed that area down, it really is putting a stranglehold on Hamas. And I can see where Hamas is starting to basically panic a little bit. Look, we believe uh, the Israelis have put out intelligence to suggest the Hamas leader flew from Qatar to Tehran for urgent consultations. And look, we were all ready for Hassan Nasrallah to announce a new northern front to this war. He was going to come out with some very fiery speech about how this was a resistance across the Arab world against uh, Israel in the name of the Palestinians. And he said, hey, the Palestinians are on their own. Uh, we're sitting back, which I thought was pretty interesting and shows you how Israel's restored deterrence. And then there was this response from the Israelis to the speech. Take a listen. admit it was so boring, I don't know whether his speechwriter was killed in recent IDF strikes on Hezbollah up in the north. He was hiding in a bunker uh, like a coward. And if I were giving a long hour-long speech defending the pedophile rapists of Hamas, I would be afraid to show my face in public as well. From a strategic standpoint, that's sort of openly antagonistic. Yes, it is. What is what's the psychological operation behind that? Well, basically, the Israelis are not intimidated. They've never been intimidated. And, and, and this leader has not done a public announcement in years. I mean, it's always been behind a camera somewhere hiding in a bunker. He just did it again. But the thing about Israel is that they are straightforward, direct, in-your-face kind of individuals. And that's what's great about them is they're describing exactly the situation of how this guy just did his speech and exactly their attitude as far as saying, excuse me, you're a coward for hiding and you're not up front doing anything. You're not leading by any type of example, which is pretty poor. Oh, cowards also take civilians as hostages. That's what Hamas has. Uh, and you, you've heard now this rallying cry from the Israelis that the hostages are their number one priority. They're inside these tunnels mixed in with Hamas fighters. Every time the Israelis are going to blow up one of these tunnels, oftentimes from the air, how do they make that decision uh, that we protect our troops on the ground by blowing up the tunnels and we might be blowing up our own hostages? That's one of the critical things that they have to watch out for. Over the years, now these tunnels have been built for years from Hamas, but also over the years, Israel's intelligence has been phenomenal. And what we use... With the exception of October 7th. That is correct. And, 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 and maybe there's some complacency on that one too, right? But the human intelligence has always been good. So they do have some information about the tunnels. In fact, I uh, was able to see some airstrikes where they went deep and they had secondaries. So they were delayed bombs that blew up tunnel areas and there were secondaries, which means there was explosives below that. So those were known hits. 
That is something Israel has. So they're going to have to enter these tunnels, which are very narrow, to prosecute as best as possible to get their hostages out. But at some point, that's a fatal funnel. It's a very narrow area where they can be shot at. It's exceptionally dangerous. So it is really going to be based on what kind of resistance that they face in the tunnel, and I hope they get the hostages. Yeah, it's almost like tunnel rats in Vietnam. Exactly. Same things they were facing. All right, exactly. it's good to see you, Glenn. Thank good to you see you, much. We appreciate it. Thanks. All right, uh, we have something new for you uh, called War Notes. It started out as our internal email uh, here at News Nation about the war uh, in Israel. Uh, and now you can subscribe to it. This is how we put the show together every day called War Notes, readwarnotes.com. So if you go to readwarnotes.com, it'll send you to our page. You can sign up for War Notes every day before the show. Uh, you're going to get a preview of how we're looking at the world, the stories we're watching, some of the stories that aren't uh, necessarily going to appear on the air, but we thought were interesting for you to see. So take out your phones right now, readwarnotes.com. Every day, 4 p.m. in your inbox. Tens of millions of Americans learned about racism and the horrors of segregation from Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. I read it. I'm sure you did as well. And you know the story. A Southern lawyer, Atticus Finch, took great personal risk to defend a black man, Tom Robinson. The white mob wanted to lynch Robinson for the bogus claim he raped a young white woman. She tempted a Negro. She was white and she tempted a Negro. She did something that in our society is unspeakable. She kissed a black man. The film won Best Picture. Gregory Peck, who played Atticus, won Best Actor. The book won a Pulitzer Prize. It is the definition of classics in American literature. And it's been banned now by a very liberal high school in the state of Washington. According to the teachers who had it pulled, to Kill a Mockingbird centers on whiteness. It presents a barrier to understanding and celebrating an authentic black point of view in civil rights literature and should be removed. So there you have it. Harper Lee, the book's author, and the central character, a white lawyer trying to keep a lynch mob at bay, are too white to really portray the civil rights era. Never mind, the New York Times, just a couple of years ago, declared it the most important book in over 100 years. Here now, former law clerk for Justice Antonin Scalia, Ian Samuel. Ian, it's good to see you. This is what I thought was most interesting from the Washington Post. Uh, four progressive teachers in Washington's uh, Mukilito School District wanted to protect students from a book they saw as outdated and harmful. The blowback was fierce. We'll get to the media coverage in a second. But protect students from a book they saw as outdated and harmful uh, forgive me, but I thought school was about learning things that were, by definition, sometimes uncomfortable. That's what history is. Uh, well, I happen to agree with that point of view. I mean, I think one can take that too far, and I, uh, I do have some sympathy for censorship of books for children. Um, but I do agree that for uh, a person who's going to have a well-rounded education in literature, encountering literature that troubles them uh, is a very good thing. Now, I've spent years making this point when it comes to, uh, you know, generally right-wingers in the United States who are troubled by books that, for example, have characters who are gay, for example. Uh, and I think the same principle applies here. But what I will say is that there is something about uh, a really great book that does inspire this kind of passion. I don't know if a book can really be called great until it has upset enough people to get banned hmm. somewhere for something. Uh, it's a real accomplishment. I mean, Harper Lee wrote a book. What's, what's the fate of most novels that are read by high school students? They're ignored, right? You, you Hopefully you read most of it. Uh, you read enough of it to you know, get a good grade in your English class, and then you forget about it and you move on. 
The one thing I will say about these students uh, and the teachers, uh, a little less so, I'm a little less impressed with them. But the students who are really moved by this is they do care about this book. Right now, we have different perspectives on it, but I do think that they have sensed something important in this piece of literature. I just think they're they're drawing the wrong lessons from it, which is where a good teacher would come in. Um, But that's how literature goes. That's how art is. It can upset people and cause them to do sometimes even quite crazy things like this. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking what George Orwell said, right? The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. Um, And look, there's there's history that we all have to learn that makes us uncomfortable about our things. I thought this was interesting. You said about banning books because it's happened a lot of times, right? 1966, this was so controversial. Virginia School Board banned the book for, quote, its immoral depiction of rape. Uh, It banned it for a different reason, right? They didn't didn't like the concept. Yeah, they, they didn't like the, the concepts here. But what you talked about conservatives banning books, and I'm, I'm interested in the, the Washington Post. Um, four progressive teachers wanted to protect the students. The blowback was fierce. The Washington Post is painting uh, these, these teachers in this completely white knight fashion, right? That, that, they are just, that they are just trying to protect their students. Yet, as you point out very well, when there are conservatives who want to protect kids from things they find offensive or troubling, then they're small-minded. Why is it a double standard? Well, I don't think it's going to blow anyone's mind to discover that the sympathies of the Washington Post are going to be mainly with left liberals. But I do think that the lesson in both cases is the same, which is that especially when you are growing up in a society that uh, substantial portions of which do not share uh, the certain values that you find you know, quite important, whatever those are, it is especially important to encounter uh, the literature uh, and the art generally that portrays those values with which you do not agree in the most sympathetic and persuasive light. Because if you do not do that, you will never be able to understand why so many of your countrymen and countrywomen adhere to things that seem to you to be obviously wrong, right? You will never be able to really get inside the mind of your fellow citizens who, for example, may have no objection to homosexuality and you regard it as quite immoral or who have different views on race than you that you seem self-evident. You will never really be able to understand why a person of goodwill could feel any way but the way that you feel if you did not encounter their art. No, I'm I'm totally with you. Look, you know, and it's what we try to do on the program, right? Um, Bias isn't having an opinion, it's excluding an opinion, and now there's so much exclusion going on. You point out why it's dangerous. Ian, we got to run, but it was a good conversation. Thank you very much. Next, no apologies ever. The governor's race in Kentucky is now too close to call. So a Soros-funded super PAC breaks out the race card, a la Uncle Tom against a black Republican. Why it's okay if it's a Democrat playing the race card. Now, Uncle Daniel Cameron is threatening to take us backwards. The same man who refused to seek justice for Breonna Taylor. Very reason for being is still, well, unclear. hundred years later. Introduced during the First World War as a fuel-saving measure by the Germans. That's right. You lost an hour of sleep this morning thanks to Kaiser Wilhelm. We're just a few days away from an election that will tell us a lot about 2024. Tuesday, Kentucky holds their off-off-year governor's election, and Kentucky's incumbent Democratic governor, Andy Bashir is slipping in the polls fast. In just a few weeks, he's lost 16 points and is now neck-and-neck with Republican challenger Daniel Cameron, sitting attorney general. Few things have happened in that time, including the release of this attack ad. 
Kelf. What's up, Kentucky? It's election time, and all skin folks ain't kin folk. Over the past few years, we've taken to the streets to demand racial justice, to demand health care, and the right to make decisions about our bodies. And now Uncle Daniel Cameron is threatening to take us backwards. The same man who refused to seek justice for Breonna Taylor now wants to run our whole state. We can't let that happen. We won't let that happen. On November 7th, vote Andy Brashear for governor. Paid for by Black Voters Matter Action Pack, which is responsible for the content of the... All right, Black Voters Matter Action Pact. Uh, it's funded in large part, we understand, by George Soros. Uh, as you heard, the ad said, skin folk ain't kin folk, calling on black Kentuckians not to vote for Cameron, Uncle Daniel Cameron, reference to Uncle Tom. Olivia Krauth is here, politics reporter at the Pulitzer Prize-winning Louisville Cour- Courier-Journal, who's been covering this. Wow. Um, did it surprise you when you saw that ad? Um, quite honestly, um, no. I, I covered the Breonna Taylor protests a few years ago. And, you know, this is not the first time Daniel Cameron has had things like that said about him. Um, and, you know, so I, I was not particularly surprised. Um, huh. Yeah, for, yeah. Forgive me, but I, I feel like if there had been a racial attack on a black Democrat, the response, especially nationally, would be a lot different. Is there, is there outrage about this in, in Kentucky and we're just not hearing it? I think there's definitely outrage um, on the Republican side. That's kind of how I heard about it initially. Um, I really haven't seen much on the Dem side. Um, wow. You know, that could be for several reasons. I know that obviously there is a difference between the campaign and a PAC, um, and there is a, a little bit of a firewall between those two. Um so some people might be hesitant to yeah. speak at all. So that well, could be Well, although, although Bashir didn't, you know, didn't disown it or disavow it or ask it to stop or condemn it or anything like that, I think this is interesting. Um, this is a state that, uh, you know, has, you know, Andy Bashir, who has a very pop- popular governor status, um, with a challenger who's a Republican who's trying to tie Bashir to a very unpopular President Biden, very unpopular um, in Kentucky. How much of this is a national referendum? I think uh, on Daniel Cameron's side, it's a big, big, big deal. Um, ultimately, you know, Kentucky has been a red state for a little bit now. It became officially red with a plurality of registered voters being Republican during Bashir's tenure. Um, but before that, it was a, it was a pro-Trump state and it continues to, to be. And so, um, making that Bashir-Biden connection has been a very critical part of a lot of Daniel Cameron's talking points. So, um, you know, that if he loses in that regard, like he, he definitely has tried his, his best, it seems. Hmm. All right. Olivia, thank you very much. We'll watch it. Election Day is on Tuesday. Thank you. This weekend, we will all engage in one of the more profoundly stupid American activities. On Sunday morning, we will fall back from daylight saving time to standard time. Daylight saving time is really two lies for the price of one. It's not actually the correct time, and it does not save daylight. Daylight, will be shocking to you to understand, cannot be created or destroyed, even by Congress, who enacts this law. Congress does not have that power. So we are just shifting daylight around, which in a word is stupid. And you know that because if we called it by its name, daylight shifting time, it would sound stupid. But it's the law. You spring forward to daylight saving time for extra light at night, and you fall back to standard time for extra light in the morning. There's a reason for that. 
Professor Liberty Vitter of Washington University is with us. Uh, what is the reason we do this? Money. What is the reason we always do this? Money. <laughs> what is the reason Congress does most things? Money. Okay. Uh, so what are, this originated during World War One and World War II as a way to save fuel. You have an extra hour of daylight at night, so then you don't use electricity, you don't use power, gas, fuel, and stuff to save fuel. Now, after that, though, the reason that we kept this ridiculous thing of daylight savings time was because of the lobbyists for retail businesses. They want an extra hour of daylight, and so they lobby really hard for Congress to still have daylight savings. So they still want it in the summer. Now, Marco Rubio has the idea of permanent daylight saving, which I guess you just shift everything forward. When, when does the time change? Why fall back and spring forward should end for good? It's clear that fall back and spring forward have outlived their purpose. My Sunshine Protection Act, who, who doesn't want to protect sunshine? Mm-hmm. Um, how can you be against fluffy puppies? Uh, and it would eliminate time changes in the spring and fall. But he says basically we've lived for eons on the wrong time. Uh, right. So to be clear, he's saying we should go to one time, but he's not saying we should be on time, right? We call, It's now called standard time. Before we had the switches, it was just time, right? So he wants to switch to a whole new time. I wonder why. Well, it's uh, Florida. It's lobby. Florida, sunshine. sunshine. There we go. Go ahead. That sunshine. All right. 57% of Americans want one time throughout the year. We can't have nice things. We all know that. Health effects. 55% experience tiredness. Fatal accidents up by 6%. Increase in attacks and strokes. Increases in hospital admissions. If you fly from D.C. to Chicago and change one time zone, it's not that big of a deal. Why is this, why is this so occupying such a large space in all of our minds? Well, first of all, it costs the U.S. a huge amount of money. It's about a half a billion dollars a year that it costs us an economic shortage from this, which, like, let's put this a little bit in perspective. That's 30,000 four-year college tuitions that we could be paying every year instead of switching time. And it's not healthy. Our circadian rhythm for thousands of years, hundreds of years, has been on standard time. So whenever we shift, which means your body needs about a week to get back to it, so for about two weeks a year, you're off. We have increase in heart attacks. Hmm. We have increase in strokes. We see huge problems. We just need one time, and that should be standard time, which is time. All right. Well, here's you noted that we've done this segment now together four times, uh, spring and fall. They're not, they're, not, they're not listening. So we'll see you in the spring. Uh, Coming up next, Jeff Bezos says goodbye to Blue Seattle. Hello to Miami. Why the billionaire escaped from liberal northern cities will crush all the, well, normal people all left behind. The world's third richest man will be leaving Seattle for Miami. Jeff Bezos bought two mansions in an area referred to as Billionaire Bunker. He wrote on Instagram, I've lived in Seattle longer than I've lived anywhere else and have so many amazing memories. As exciting as the move is, it's an emotional decision for me. Seattle, you will always have a piece of my heart. After 30 years, Seattle will have a piece of his heart. The reason he's moving is so Seattle doesn't have a piece of his wallet. He joins a growing list of billionaires that have left big blue cities and states to go to places like Miami and Texas. Elon Musk from California to Austin, Kent Griffin, Citadel Capital, one of the richest guys in the world, Chicago, Illinois to Palm Beach, Elliott Management's Paul Singer, Carl Icahn's firm, Icahn Enterprises, Blackstone, just to name a few. Whole big list. Yeah. As the headlines from Philly, New York, Seattle, and Chicago show, they will be missed. Well, maybe not them. But their tax dollars will be missed. Those big cities 
for years, decades really, have been slowly going broke because of pension liabilities, crumbling infrastructure, increasing social services. With the new flight of the wealthy tax base, those big blue cities will now go broke very quickly. A man who does not lose sleep over that fact is Mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. Okay, we're going to get we're going to get to the problems in the blue cities in a minute, Mayor. It's good to see you. Um, but help us understand here. You. Yeah, what what really is going on? What is is this? This isn't ending. This sort of flight to red cities in the South. It's not ending. I think it's um, it's sort of in the midway point. And I think the reason why is simple. Right. We follow three simple rules. We keep taxes low. We keep people safe and we lean into innovation. So we lowered taxes to the lowest level in history uh, last year. This year we lowered them again. Last year we grew 14 percent. The year before that we grew 12 percent. So when you lower taxes, shockingly, uh, you have economic growth. Then we, we used our resources to keep people safe. So we increased funding for police while other cities across America famously defunded their police. Um, and guess what? Uh, we have the lowest homicide rate this year in recorded history. Uh, let me say that again. Hmm. In recorded history. We started recording homicides in 1947. If the year ended today, we'd have the lowest. We have 24 uh, in our high water mark. We're at 220. And then, like I said, you know, we focus on innovation. We want to create a future-proof economy of the future to make sure that our children uh, can taste prosperity. Right, we, we understand and that why. is leading into the American dream. No, I, I get why people are moving. Uh, plus, the weather's pretty good. And look, you know, you can always leave Miami for a couple of months and still have too. your residency there. Washington State capital gains, and this was basically like a, a, a Bezos-tailored tax. It was Bezos for the Amazon guys, all the Microsoft guys. Uh, 2022, 7% excise tax on long-term capital gains over $250,000. Bezos would have owed $700 million in taxes in Washington. Uh, he gets to move to Florida and then sell uh, his Amazon stock. Now, look, the, the problem is, and I think you, you at least have probably a little bit of sympathy for the, the big city mayors up in Chicago and Philadelphia, New York, Seattle, et cetera, Portland, that they're now, they were going broke slowly. Now they're going broke very quickly. They can't replace that ki- that kind of tax base and that that kind of revenue, what's going to happen? Well, I, I would say that they can, uh, but they have to be disciplined and they have to make tough choices. I could tell you when I became a councilman in 2009, I inherited a 20% a budget deficit as a result of the real estate market crash. And you know what we did in Miami? We didn't increase revenue by increasing taxes. We did something shocking. We reduced expenses. Um, and so we did that. Uh, today, uh, we were bankrupt at the time. Today, we have uh, the highest bond rating in history, basically the highest credit rating. We have the highest surplus. So we've not only reduced taxes, but we also have the most money reserved in cash. Uh, and, we, and we have annual surpluses. So it can be done. It just requires discipline. I know that's a, uh, a word that's not very popular in politics. It requires discipline and it requires making tough choices. I was, I'm was. i thinking about where I used to live in Chicago, and for that matter, in Washington, D.C. The idea of reducing expenses is just completely unthinkable, <laughs> totally unthinkable. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's laughable for a lot of governments. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, look, you did it. It's pretty pretty amazing. Um, you're living, living proof that it's possible. Uh, are you going to, you, you got invited to any events with Bezos? Are you going to come welcome him to Miami? 
Listen, I would love to. I'd, I'd love to have him at City Hall, give him the key to the city. He is, uh, you know, one of our favorite sons, right? He actually uh, went to school at Palmetto High in Miami um, and, and now is coming back. And so we call that the boomerang effect. You know, people who left uh, earlier in their generation uh, and then have come back. And so we think that it's, it's a testament to what we're building here in Miami, one of the most uh, dynamic ecosystems in the planet. Wow. All right. Hey, Mayor, congratulations. You were the right man to talk about this. You got a great story to tell. And, uh, you know, money talks. Literally, that's where people are moving. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Have a great weekend. This afternoon, Ivanka Trump dropped her appeal and agreed to testify in her father's New York fraud trial. The move comes after trying to get out of testifying because doing so, in her words, would cause a, quote, undue hardship. The undue hardship, she claimed, was because it was in the middle of the school week. In other words, the mother of three who routinely posts glamorous Instagram pictures of her billionaire's life in Miami and beyond just couldn't find childcare. There she is with Kim Kardashian. Never mind her trips to Kardashian's birthday party. Uh, don't see any kids there. So that wasn't a hardship. The view of all people had a great point. And a judge did not buy Ivanka's claim that she couldn't come to New York because of childcare issues. <laughs> So the judge was like, I don't think that's going to fly, babe. So she's going to be here next week. Yeah, she traveled all over the world when she was at the White House, and the children were even smaller. Also, of course, these children have a father that could take care of them during school day. That was another point The View made. So it's kind of hard to imagine The View would shame someone into doing the right thing. But the blowback has been such that Ivanka has dropped the undue hardship complaint and has ended her appeal. The most important poll question, and this is important because her father is now running for president again. The most important poll question in determining a politician's success is, does this person care about people like me? Claiming undue hardship despite an army of nannies, housekeepers, and staff does not make people think you care about people like them. Coming up, the old school diner owner who risked his business to do the right thing, standing up to hate for this man, even meant losing customers. He's with us next. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I think we are seeing the most disruptive force in history here. Um, you know, where we have for the first time, we will have for the first time something that is smarter than the smartest human. There will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want to have a job for sort of personal satisfaction, but the AI will be able to do everything.
Hmm. I guess our nays are numbered here on television. That was Elon Musk just yesterday at the AI Safety Summit, where he dove into the dangers and opportunities of AI, and now has announced his own new AI startup, XAI, that will launch tomorrow. I don't know, Cuomo, is it just you or me? I don't wish Elon Musk ill, right? But I do just kind of wish him gone in his sort of constant warnings and prophecies and then promises to save everybody from everything that's evil way of doing things. Yeah, I I feel I'm smelling what you're cooking, Leland. And Mm. I think part of it is he has too much power to be this shameless a provocateur. You know, he plays at what people do when they're trying to fake it until they make it. He has made it. He uh, has control of one of the largest social media platforms. He's got one of the most innovative companies. He's got one of the biggest NASA proxies. You know, this guy's got a lot of power and a lot of influence. And I often feel like he's just trying to mess with everybody's minds. And he's doing it again now with AI. And it would be one thing if he was like, had a podcast You know what I mean? (laughs) But this guy's got a lot of power over a lot of people and their opinions, and people listen to him. Yeah, look, he's he's got his own foreign policy almost, right? I mean, you know, he's able to provide Starlink to Ukraine and sort of has act almost as a a separate entity from some countries. Uh, What do you got coming up on the show? So this is going to be a tough one. Uh, There has now been a chain of allegations that raise the question of whether Israel has gone too far with its bombardment. The refugee (laughs) camp, uh, multiple hospitals, an ambulance, uh, maybe more ambulances. Is there an explanation? We have the IDF uh, main spokesperson to come on and address these. But the U.N. has made allegations. The Red Cross has countered. I, I, for, forgive me. Forgive me. Is this? Uh, forgive me. Hold on. For, just real quick. Is this the same UN that just named the uh, Iranian delegation head of the Human Rights Social Council? Same UN. Yes. Oh, same okay. UN. I just want. I just want to double check it. But, you know, I don't believe in the armed wing of Hamas. I believe that there's just one terror organization. But I okay. do believe that you wanted you judge different aspects of the UN differently. Uh, in our business, the U.N. <laughs> High Commission on Human Rights, I, they, they've always every time I've observed their work and I've listened to what they say, uh, I'm OK with them. There are other branches of the U.N. I understand uh, the high dudgeon, okay. but they're on the ground. And if they say, no, 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 your bombs hit the refugee camp, they didn't hit near it or just a Hamas outlet. Mm. Now you got to ask the questions. I also have an expert on what the line is on rules of engagement and war versus war crimes. Uh, And it's very different than people are assuming on social media. Uh, There's 100% uh, true of that. Uh, I think you could ask the people of Dresden about it. Um, Coming up next, Chris, uh, you'll be here in 10 minutes. Thank you. Next in Philadelphia, four masked men ripped an Israeli flag from a restaurant's wall. You can imagine how terrified the family was. When we come back, we're going to meet a diner owner who's fighting back against all of this. Uh, 
A mob of Hamas supporters tried to take over a store you can see uh, in New York because the store's owner had hung poster of Israeli hostages in the windows. It's a little bit reminiscent of what happened in 1938, Nazi Germany, Kristallnacht. Not something one would expect to see in New York City in 2023, but this is where we're at. Showing support of Israel and Americans being held hostage underground in Gaza, well, the mob comes for you. Not far from midtown Manhattan on Long Island, one man is defying the mob. The Golden Globe Diner is now facing a boycott after displaying the Israeli flag and posting those same images of hostages in the windows. The diner's owner, Peach Sedillis, tells us his efforts to show support for Israel has sparked outrage from locals. Three staff members quit. Several daily regulars haven't returned. Local DoorDash drivers refuse to pick up from the diner. And yet, Pete is standing strong. The Israeli flag still flies outside the diner, and it's so full he had to come outside to talk to us. Pete, uh, tell, tell us why you've done this. I, I've heard you're not Jewish. I'm not Jewish, um, but uh, you don't have to be Jewish to, you know, have a heart and know what the right thing is. I mean, you know, these are kids. These are mothers. These are fathers. These are people that, you know, truth of the matter is, have nothing to do with war, have nothing to do with the conflict, and have been brought into the center stage of this for no, absolutely no reason. Hmm. And, right, so, you know. So, Pete, tell me what not, happened when you first put up the Israeli flags. I see the, the pictures of the hostages in your window. What what happened? You, you had to have been a little scared, right? Not at all. Not at all. What do you mean? I'm in America. That's why I came to America. So I won't be scared. So I have freedom of speech and I'll be able to believe what I want to believe. Why would I be scared? No, I, I would say you had to be a little scared of, of the mobs now that you see coming for businesses that display the Israeli flag. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I'm on Long Island. You know, they, they'd be okay. pretty ballsy to come out and do that. But the uh, truth of the matter is, um, you know, I grew up in Woodbury, Long Island, New York, a primarily Jewish area. And, uh, you know, my whole life. I've known Jewish people. I've had best friends that are Jews. Uh, my my father-in-law is Jewish. And, uh, you know, they're so close to Greece, where I'm from, that I feel that if uh, the Jewish nation and Israel buckles, you know, it's only going to, you know, force us Greeks to flee from our own country. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, they, you know. Only democracy in the Middle East. Um, so tell me, so people boycotted. Um, I know there was a bunch of stuff on social media to tell people not to come to the diner. Uh, and then now you're so busy, you got to come outside. Tell me how that happened. Well, one day this lady walks in. She basically said, uh, I'm not hungry. Uh, I, I'm very I'm very busy. I'm in a rush. I couldn't find parking, but I'm going to have an omelet here. Oh, and she said she was kosher also. And she said, I'm going to have an omelet here anyway. She had the omelet. We took a picture. And uh, she, you know, it went viral. You know, people responded to it. And before you know it, you know, people were calling the diner. People were calling me from as far as Israel. You know, people have shown up at the wow. diner from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I mean, I've had people call, say they're leaving uh, Daytona Beach and we'll see you there. And like, That's so cool. You know, Pete, I got to tell you, it's a great way to end the week uh, with restoring our hope in humanity. I think we've lost Pete. Uh, he had to go in and make some omelets. Pete, thank you for what you're doing. It's important. You would have known about Pete's story a few